the key is to find whatever that you can do that will be just at the edge of your capability so that you're constantly learning and growing. When's the last time you felt real joy about your work? If you spend most of your time focused on driving results, but not on driving more joy, you probably have a joy gap. Welcome to Joy at Work. On this podcast, we'll think about how to build a culture that infuses more joy into everyday work life. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman of AT Kearney. The alarm buzzes, out of bed, off to work, email, meetings, email, meetings, repeat. The work week can feel a little humdrum after a while. So how can you inject a sense of fun, adventure, novelty into your work and your work culture? How do you keep things challenging and interesting? I recently spoke with John Levy, a behavioral scientist who studies influence and adventure. We covered a lot of ground. We talked about his first job as a door-to-door salesman, what he has learned in working with some of the world's most influential people, and the difference between happiness and joy. Keep listening for some new ideas about how to keep work interesting and engaging. So the topic is joy at work, and there's so many angles to this, and lots have been written about the topic, especially recently. And I was really intrigued by your TED Talk and some of the other things that you're known for and written about. I wanted to come to that, but I, I wanted to, you know, since the topic is joy at work, tell me a little bit about sort of how, how you look at work, maybe your first job, your favorite job. That might be helpful at the beginning. Uh, sure. So besides having to do like all the chores at home growing up, my first real job where I got to get like a real paycheck and deposit it, I sold knives in people's homes for a company called Cutco Cutlery Corporation. Uh, you might remember all the college students come to your home, they try to sell you knives. And that was me. Wow. What, I, mean, what, uh, I mean, what were some of the uh, things you learned from that experience? Oh, God. So there's this interesting thing. And as you know, I'm a behavioral scientist. There's this concept called progress principle. And the way it works is that research suggests that we actually get more enjoyment from the little wins along the way than we do from completing some big task. So in fact, if we suddenly complete a big task, it might feel like we've, we don't know what to do next. And so what I loved about Cutco was that no matter, especially because I was so young and it was my first job, everything was new. And so I felt like I was learning constantly. And everything I was learning was kind of just at that, the edge of my skill set. So I had to go into people's homes and, and convince them that like this product was good and valid and figure out ways to connect with them. And, and uh, presentation after presentation, I'd feel more and more engagement and more and more uh, comfortable in the process. And so it let me develop new skills of interpersonal communication. I was repping a really great product, which was nice. So I didn't, I wasn't worried about like any integrity issues. And there was also this really strong level of camaraderie with all the people that work there. A lot of research suggests that when you feel really connected to the people that you work with, the job itself is more enjoyable and more joyous. It's interesting, these lessons that you pick up early, because one of the, actually one of my early jobs in college was actually door-to-door selling as well, ironically. Really? It was a, yeah, I sold uh, these Electrolux vacuum cleaners door-to-door. They're amazing. Oh, they're the best. My mom yeah. still still had it for We have years. one. They're phenomenal. <laughs> I still remember the whole pitch, but I mean, the idea was, I mean, and we were solitary. I might have been paired up with someone, but you have to learn about building rapport at 10 a.m. in the morning, you know, with people that have no idea who you are and why you're at their doorstep. And and what I learned, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, was, you know, you know, after a while when the door closes on you, you sort of, you sort of walk away a little dejected, but you figure out that, you know, one out of 10 lets you in. 
and then one out of three demos is a sale. So you got to knock on 30 doors to get a sale. That's what you learn. You learn resilience that way. It's interesting. There's this uh, human characteristic. It's actually, I think a lot of mammals have this. It's called the winner effect. And the winner effect says that every time you experience a win, you flood with testosterone, making you more likely for your next win. And if you keep stacking those up, well, animals in nature end up getting too confident and they get into fights and stuff like that and get hurt. But one of the things that we would learn to do is just get a few small wins in at the beginning. So like you can call up an old customer and just get a small order so that it just builds the momentum. And then the small rejections along the way don't really affect you as much. And that momentum carries you. Well, I want to come to that because that's a theme that I've heard from other sources too, which is, you know, we have our day-to-day lives at work. How do you get that day-to-day energy, inspiration, joy, uh, our topic, to replicate those small wins and then to to make it even more infectious? I want to come to that in a second, but tell me a little bit more about what you're working on now. Obviously, there's a a lot of foundation to how you think about the world and you've done a lot of original research on this. What what are you working on these days? What I'm probably best known for career-wise is that I spent uh, about 10 years ago, I spent a year trying to understand how to engage the most influential people in our culture. And so I modeled their behavior, looked at how they engage and connect. And from that, I created a secret dining experience. 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And they find out that it's the editor-in-chief of Elle and a Nobel laureate and the president of MTV and a two-time Olympian and a famous actor. And so I've hosted over 1,600 people across 190 dinners in nine cities in three countries. And so companies started coming to me and say, if you understand how to connect with all these people, can you help us connect with our customers? How do we engage the people that are most important to us? So we developed this entire methodology for if you want to connect with people in a deep and meaningful way, well, let's be honest, giving them a gift bag at the end of an event isn't necessarily going to do that. And spending a lot on a steak dinner, it's nice, but I'm not necessarily going to feel more connected to you. So how do we actually do that? On this dinner thing, this is very interesting because your point, I think, is that everyone has kind of a secret gift, right? They add something to the party, to the dinner event. And finding that is actually quite joyful and it gives people a reason to connect and the like. Can you talk more about your theory, therefore, about how this, you know, I guess, recycles your energy, new theories about influencing and the like. I I think this is fascinating, the novelty effect. You talked about this in your TED Talk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So here's the the interesting thing. We look at most people who really operate at a high level. Like, let's say you, for example, uh, you run this incredible organization that helps companies around the world transform. And everybody, as a byproduct, wants access to you. They want your, I I like to say steam. They want your social clout because spending time with you gives them status. They want your time, but your time is really spent working. It's not necessarily spent hanging out with celebrities and stuff like that. They want your expertise, your access, and your money. And since everybody's after these things, what is it that we can do that would actually have you want to connect that will stand out in some meaningful way? And what we found out that if I do something that's very generous, then you're not as concerned that I'm after something. And if we look at research by Adam Grant on generosity, then the people who are least successful and the most successful are people who are givers. So if you compare them to takers, people who take disproportionately or matchers, those that mimic. And what separates the two groups of givers is those that know where to draw the line. So if I can give and know where to draw the line, then you end up happier, I end up happier, and I don't work so hard that I don't get to sleep and things like that. The second thing is novelty. 
And novelty is really, really important. There's actually a section of the brain called the SNVTA, the Substantia Niagara Ventral Tegmental Area. And nobody needs to remember any of that. It's the no, major I won't novelty. Get that. <laughs> yeah. It's essentially just the major novelty center of the brain. And when you trigger it, it responds relative to how novel something is. So if you've experienced a lot of things, if I invite you to a casino themed fundraiser, would that be that exciting for you? Yeah, I've done about 10 of them. So. Not as new, yeah, right. But if I say, I'm going to give you an all-expense-paid trip to Myanmar, and we're going to go see all of the historical sites there, well, that's fundamentally more novel, right? It, it triggers the brain and actually entices you to explore and understand it. It's why we have the design that you have to cook and that you can't talk about work, is that this design is so different than what people are used to that it draws them in and makes them engage. And then the third characteristic that we found is really, really important is curation, which is that the most influential people in our culture tend to spend time with their staff and their admins. And so if you can curate an environment like Davos or TED or these dinners where people go far out of their way to connect with these exceptional human beings. And so I've never seen anything so consistently produce an experience of enjoyment as interacting with great people. I think your comment about novelty leads to a topic on adventure, which I want to come to in a second. But the, these other thoughts you had on curation and in particular the generosity and the, and the uh, giving piece, I wanted to come to that because I'm a big fan of Adam Grant as well. I'm glad you mentioned his, brilliant. his contribution. Absolutely. But, you know, uh, on the joy at work theme, you think about our day-to-day -day lives, and a lot of it is based on, you know, success, your objectives, your accountability. And a lot of that is, okay, you got me, you give me some objectives. I got to do things and resource allocate and make decisions to be able to do, deliver to you and deliver to my objectives so I can, you know, get a bigger bonus or stock options or whatever. You're talking about flipping the script a little bit, which is, you know, the more you give, then, you know, it, you get the multiplier effect or something. It becomes a, becomes more cultural, I guess. What do you, what do you think? I mean, how, how do you think about that? I, I want to just talk more on this generosity, giving the cultural aspects of what that means. So I think it really comes down to that we are wired for social interaction as a species. And so we would have never survived as individuals in nature. A single mother caring for a child can't collect enough calories to have both of them survive and take care of the child. And so it means that we're interdependent and we're rewarded for the efforts that we put into one another. In fact, there's this funny characteristic of human beings called the Ikea effect. It was popularized by a famous scientist by the name of Dan Ariely. And what he found is that people disproportionately care about their Ikea furniture because they have to assemble it. So anything we put effort into, we actually care about disproportionately. It's why we get so much joy from our children, because we put in all the effort to get them to that point, that they do whatever they do, and then we feel joy from it. It's not because of some genetic relationship, because adopted kids are just as loved cared for as those that are naturally born. And so I think that the important thing here is that a in the process of career success, it's virtually impossible to accomplish anything on your own in a meaningful way. You require teams and companions and mentors and all that. And that means that we fundamentally get enjoyment from our contributions to others. And that's, I think, what's really important is that yeah, I mean, I guess the... Go, go ahead. Oh, no, please. No, I was going to say a lot of the organizational theory and psychologists over the years or management gurus have talked about the importance of leadership and teams and the like, but it seems that no more than in the current environment, that's, it, it's more, it's even more critical because people, even though they're connected, don't, are not, they feel isolated. They just feel like I'm on my own and the like. I guess that's what I see in dealing with clients and companies around the world, and even my own company, you have to deal with that. You have to counter that trend of being bored. This is just a job. I'm working too hard. No appreciation. How do you overcome that? I think a lot of the 
the lessons you have are pretty helpful in terms of the day-to-day stuff, the, you know, the small stuff matters. What's your thinking on that? I think a few things. One is there's a, a brilliant researcher by the name of Barry Schwartz. He's probably most famous for coming up with uh, the paradox of choice. Right? The more options we have, the less satisfied we generally are. And he wrote a book called Why We Work. And he asked the question, if in this contemporary environment, where the millennial workforce is driven by kind of a different set of values. We didn't grow up with the go find a safe job, work for a certain length of time and have a pension, right? People switch jobs. They have do things that have nothing to do with their majors. It's, it's a different landscape. How do you actually retain talent? And what he found is that there's kind of five characteristics. One of them is what's your greater purpose? And, and he gives this example of a company that makes floor tiling. The process is highly polluting. And the owner of the company one day said, hey, I've made a fortune. I'm going to pass this company down to my grandchildren, but we can't, like, I'm not going to have it destroy the planet. So we're going to figure out a way to be like carbon neutral or or non-polluting. And they were expecting year after year of losses until it all worked out because they had to re-engineer processes. And what happened was that the employees were so moved by the, the greater mission that it reduced employee sick days, employee accidents, it increased productivity, and they were profitable from the beginning. One thing is, what's the greater mission of the company? And I think the masters at this are Disney, because the employees, regardless of they're cleaning the floors or they are executives at the offices, really strike me when I talk to them that they have this great mission and purpose. And you've obviously come across a number of sort of leaders, global folks that are of renown in these dinners. I mean, these 1,400 folks that you've hosted and and done your law done all the dishes for you and the like, and this is an amazing story, actually. You know, for, in terms of what the leader can do to instill that or amplify that or encourage that, any tips you've picked up in these sort of side conversations? That oh, these yeah, for dinners? sure. It seems, and let's, it could be any topic from companies that come to me and say, they're senior people at the companies and they're like, Yes, we have a real focus on diversity and and, uh, we want to donate or support public efforts for diversity and inclusion, or we want to have an impact on the, uh, what was it? Oh, the prison industrial complex and make a real difference. And my first question to them is, okay, but do you ask potential employees if they're felons? Because you can probably do more as a company doing work inside out than anything else. And it's in general, and I think this is interesting because of what you're doing, which is, from what I understand, you guys took an inside-out approach around joy. You first started having a conversation internally with your employees, and then you continued that conversation. And it wasn't until you had some basis there that then you said, okay, let's take this one step further and bring it out and then share that with the world, uh, with the podcast or whatever it is. And I think there needs to be a top-down and bottom-up approach of how do we actually tackle whatever topic it is. And, you know, I come and consult with companies, and I recently was talking to somebody, and they said, oh, our company's mission. I said, what is it? And they said, our mission is to drive future growth. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. And they said, neither do any of the employees, so we don't know what we're doing. And it's kind of this wild thing that unless you can easily communicate in a few words what you really want to do and be honest about it, it's going to be hard for employees across the company to get behind it. That's really interesting because I think you're right. I mean, we've heard the old adage that culture beats strategy every day of the week and on weekends too, as we all probably personally know. And I think that's true. I mean, for a, you know, for us, we're a consulting company, so we work with companies and our joy is derivative from a business perspective, right? We're helping them succeed, but we also need to bring the passion to make them succeed. So it is a bit of a culture of generosity of service. You know, it's a client service business. So I think a lot 
lot of what you say is actually quite compelling and trenchant. It makes sense to me, intuitive. And and again, as you flip it to me, the you know we have thirty five hundred people in our company globally, and you know all cultures, all geographies, but most of them are millennials. I mean, they they are just as you described earlier. You know, on a fast track to purpose, and um, getting them motivated around and appreciating the real privilege of Abby having this opportunity, this profession is. It's intuitive, but it's tough to come out, right? You say, oh, it's a job. I'm trying to get promoted in two weeks, six months, whatever. That's really cool the way you talked about that. And, you know, the inside out and the outside in has got to fit together. But as I listen to you speak, it's actually closer to how we probably need to run our firms and my particular firm uh, every day. How do you think a, a CEO or a, a leader of a company or should, should be leading by example? You know, how can, what can they do individually outside of encourage a culture of, of excellence and passion and generosity and stuff and joy. I actually take one step back. And I think that what you're asking is a great question. You brought up something really interesting that I, I think would be valuable to address, which is that there's this perspective of millennials that's purpose-driven. I think the that it, if I could give a little message to the millennials out there and the next generations, that there's this kind of obsession with, quote unquote, living your best life or everything has to be perfect and Instagrammable and all that. And the, the funny thing is that there's no evidence that to suggest that like you'll really be happier having one job over another, or you'll get more joy from one thing or another. At a certain point, if you're like a school teacher and you're really passionate about it, at a certain point, you're just kind of waking up and you have a lot of work to do. And the kids are jerks and difficult to deal with. Or if you think you're going to be passionate, saving lives as a doctor. At a certain point, you're studying for hours on end, wishing that med school was over. It, there's all these idyllic assumptions about how life would be. And I look at the research, the most suggestive thing is that you find something that's engaging, that you can actually put effort towards and feel that you're making progress. Because we tend to complain when like happiness and joy can often be ephemeral. And so we tend to notice that they're not there when we're sad, depressed, or bored. But when we're engaged in what we do, the work and the time passes quickly. And so the key is to find whatever that you can do that will be just at the edge of your capability so that you're constantly learning and growing. And the best example of this that I've seen was by a great author by the name of Shane Snow. He said, it's like being on a jungle gym. You want the bars far enough apart that you can swing and catch them. Not so far that you'll fall off the jungle gym and not so close that you can't build momentum. And it's in the momentum, right? So if I suddenly put you on in a jungle gym in the middle, you might not be able to reach the next bar because you don't have any momentum. And it's the same way with careers. If I suddenly put somebody completely unqualified as a senior vice president, they'll have no momentum and experience to keep them going. They'll fail. I mean, I love your grasp and reach point, which I think is a great analogy. And it does link a little bit back to your example. You talked about, the, I think it was Schwartz, uh, about the sort of the options paradox. Do what you love, do what you choose, but also love what you do and what you choose and not be so conflicted about, you know, the fear of missing out. Right? We, yeah. we hear a lot, we hear a lot oh about my God, that, right? Yes. In the millennials. Oh my and, God. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, so pervasive. You put your finger on this, uh, the power of intentionality. Let's say that you're a young millennial and you just got this, um, you know, you got the chance to work in a bank or a consulting company or at Cutco. <laughs> How do you must summon the energy, the passion, the purpose to get the most out of that versus, you know, jumping to the next broader purpose? I want to save the whales or what, you know, I mean. Mm. Yeah, that's great. How do so, you get that? How do you get going on your momentum theory here? So there's a few things. One is I'm always probably going to come back to the community factor. There was this really fascinating study by 
these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler, they were curious about the obesity epidemic. And they were curious, does it spread from person to person like a cold? Or is it an epidemic that's a percentage of the population, right? You don't get Alzheimer's because you shake somebody's hand who has Alzheimer's. And what they found was startling. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. What's even more interesting is that your friends who don't know the obese person, their chances increase by 20%, and their friends by 5%. And it's true also for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Everything passes through our social networks. And so in my mind, if you want to be effective, successful, and focused, find the people who do that really well and figure out how to include them as much as possible in your community. Because when you entrench yourself in those kinds of conversations with people who have those kinds of standards, it's impossible not to be affected by it. That and is so, a good point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, no, please. No, I was going to say you're raising the bar on your life, right? Because you're, like you said, you're always picking people that raise the average in terms of respect and trust in you and vice versa, that community. Like you, I like your point about bringing together the people that you admire, and then you will therefore become better, your best version. Yeah. So, and here's the thing. There's one other element that I would add, which is that there's this philosophical belief that uh, we're defined by our past. And that's partially true in a funny way, but there's an equally valid, or I'd actually argue more valid perspective that we're defined by the future that we believe we have. So if you think that in an hour, a fully stocked limo with your favorite friends is coming to pick you up to take you on vacation for two weeks, your view of life is very different than if you're going in to meet with your accountant and you've worried you're worried that you're going to have a huge tax bill. So it's the future that we're living into. So the question then becomes, what can you put in your future that would excite or inspire you? There's also the other side too, which is there's natural insecurity in the workforce, right? It's, it's competitive, everyone's talented, maybe more talented than you. I was thinking as you were laying out some of your themes and lessons about, you know, in our own world, in my world, we have a practical example of like recruiting. You know, how do you explain to someone why should they join you? And also, why would you want to hire someone that's that's even smarter, more gifted, more talented than you? Because, you know, on the one hand, you're repl- you're hiring people that are going to replace you in about a year. <laughs> but the, the way you describe it makes a lot more sense to me, which is you're, if you're always trying to raise the game, you always want better teammates so that you can be a better teammate. And in fact, everyone, it's a win-win. It's not a zero-sum game and the like. Uh, you hear a lot these days about diversity and the best workforces, the best teams are actually they're global, they're diverse, they're inclusive. So what you say actually makes a lot of sense to me. The first thing I heard when you talked about the dinner thing was that if everyone in your world, your community, your dinner, your company has a special gift, and if your personal adventure is to actually go find out about that, you know, where they are, my 3,500 people in my company or the 10,000 people at this other company, you know, your whole your whole career could be made of that. And it would be a happy experience and you'd probably do thing, great things together. This gift analogy that you, is something that I'm going to take away. I think that's wonderful. I also think it's wonderful if people are allowed to then also explore and develop other gifts. Because the skill set that you were passionate about when you were 20 is probably really different every five years for you. So right now, the skill set of creating joy is probably really important to you. And that might be your superpower right now. And 10 years ago, it might have been on being able to hear what people are saying beyond the words, because people often can't express themselves. I wish sometimes I wish I just had one superpower, not not, <laughs> not working on my second one. Now, I've, I've used this term in a couple of external settings that, you know, happiness obviously is the direction, right? We all want to be happy. But joy is kind of the force. Right. And if you put force and direction, that's vector, that's momentum, that's the grasp and reach point that you raise. 
What do you think about that? Is that kind of kooky or is that, I mean, everyone has a different definition. So I wanted to get your definition of joy and happiness too at the end of this, but I just wanted to bounce off my crazy one. It's a, it's a funny thing. And I'm going to say something kind of odd. All right. I believe joy exists. I'm not really sure about happiness. And here's why. We tend to discuss happiness when we're unhappy. And when we're not discussing that we're unhappy, I think what we're generally saying is that we're positively engaged in something. So happiness is being an active player in our life. So we're feeling progress and moving towards something. When we have that stagnation, we have that boredom, depression, sadness, that's when we talk about being unhappy. So what you're saying is we might be overthinking it. (laughs) I, I think that happiness is probably overthought. It's also just one of many ways of being, right? So I'll give you an example. Do you have any kids? Yes, three adult kids. So you probably know this better than I do by far. The statistics are that children make us significantly less happy. Our happiness levels do not return to normal until children leave the house. But here's the flip side of it. If we're only focused on happiness, then we will probably not achieve those moments of joy that we have. So the satisfaction that people have years and years and years later, you ask them, what is the most meaningful thing you've ever done? You'll find people who've gone to the moon come back and say, raising my children. And the joy they get from that is incredible. I guess it depends on what age they were at when you asked me that question. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> but you're right. The, you know, at the end of the day, we have our family and our memories. So you'd like to create the best memories, you know, outside of your family at work and the like. So the one, the one quote that I took from Adam Grant at the Davos dinner, which I think he was attributing to someone else. I'm not, I can't remember who was. Our life should be not the pursuit of happiness, but actually the happiness of our pursuits. That's right? lovely. I love it. You've given us some great aspirational thoughts here, John. Thank you so much for your generosity. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you're looking for ways to bring more joy into your work, subscribe to Joy at Work in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you inject a sense of adventure and novelty into your work. Share on social media with the hashtag Joy at Work. If you have ideas for future topics or guests, email us at joy at atcarney.com. This podcast is produced by AT Carney. We're a global management consulting firm. We try to find joy in helping our clients tackle their biggest challenges. Learn more at atcarney.com slash joy at work.